This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bioproof and 40 OS. The nitrogen you need, now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Freedom. It's a word associated with Independence Day. This week, I have a special guest that will talk about all kinds of freedom, for better or worse. There is the fight for freedom, the soldiers who go to war to preserve the rights of all. There's also the freedom to make choices that can sometimes lead us down paths that cause serious consequences, or in this case, even send us to prison. Jack has been on both paths, and what he shares can impact all of us for the better. It's our special Independence Day topic for this week's Farming the Countryside. Brought to you by Pivot Bio. You've heard me talk about my experiences using Pivot Bio Proven 40 with our corn crop. For the past three years, Pivot Bio has offered U.S. corn growers a product that is applied through an in furrow application. Now, Pivot Bio Proven 40 on seed gives growers even more flexibility with their nitrogen plant. I simply take my pro box of seed and have it treated with one of Pivot Bio's industry leading seed treaters. Pivot Bio Proven 40 OS is a reliable form of nitrogen that's delivered during the most critical growth periods. You can count on it to supply the nitrogen you need because Pivot Bio products contain naturally occurring microbes that fix nitrogen from the air and provide it directly to corn plants all season long. I hope you'll learn more. Just go to pivotbio.com. As some of you may know, around holidays, in this case Independence Day, I like to share some stories tied to a theme associated with that event. So in that regard, this broadcast does that. Jack Hager served in Vietnam, but as you'll hear, that service left him with many feelings. From there, some of his choices led him to some challenging places, including prison. But while in prison, something happened that still greatly impacts his life today. In fact, it has a direct bearing on what he's doing this summer. This show is usually about farming and agriculture. So this week may seem to be a bit of a departure, although Jack's place certainly has the right setting, as we did this interview in the countryside near DeKalb, Missouri, with corn and soybean fields across the road and birds chirping on a nice morning. Our show really isn't about religion, although Jack will certainly tell you about how his Christian faith and prayer played a role in his very survival and what he does today. So this program may touch people in many ways including at the end of the show, where he shares about what we'll call his summer project, which has come about in part due to some health challenges he has right now. Here's our conversation. Jack, let's go back and, and look at your life for just a moment. Uh, maybe we start with your service in Vietnam, kind of lead me up to that time when you're going to go in, into battle. I graduated high school in 65, had a couple of scholarships, didn't want to go to any more school, uh, was probably an alcoholic at that time, and... Even though I was an Army rat, I went down and talked to my Army recruiter and took all the tests, and he said, Mr. Hager, you're just what the Army's looking for. And he said, if you enlist in the Army Security Agency for four years, not only will you not go to Vietnam, you probably won't even go overseas. I fell for it, went to basic AIT, went to Korea for 25 months. From Korea, I went to Germany for two months, and then I finished up in Nam. While in Vietnam, talk about uh, what you did there. My MOS, my job, was the ultimate oxymoron, military intelligence. But as soon as you get to Nam, it's the good of the service. And I got attached to the 11th Armored Cav. I was a track commander in an Armored Cavalry assault vehicle. My regimental commander, by the way, was Colonel George S. Patton, Jr. Uh, and so we, 17 tons, 
very effective weapon. Uh, a lot of base camp stuff. A lot of com not not a lot of ground combat. Sitting behind a fifty caliber machine gun is more easy than rocking around. But you know, I think all combat vets don't want to talk about it. So if you ever get around somebody that claims to be a combat vet and starts talking about it, watch their nose. It's probably going to grow. We might talk about it amongst ourselves, but not with civilians. And uh, I don't regret. I regret that Vietnam happened. I don't regret that I served in it. I wish I would have been a believer then, a Christian. I wasn't, so I did all the typical dumb GI stuff. Well, that's part of the story that we're going to get into. When you're serving in the war, what's going on at that time in your life? Because your life's going to continue to make some turns after the war, but I'm curious what's going on while you're serving. There's an old rock song back then. I was 22 years old. Don't want to live, don't want to die. And that's where I was. I just didn't care. Didn't care about anything from the time I was about 14 on. I don't think there was a <clears throat> dramatic, I don't think my mother molested me, that kind of thing. It was just, I didn't care. It just, didn't you ever have a guilty conscience when you're dealing drugs? No. Do unto others before they do unto you. And Vietnam probably exasperated that a little bit because I, I was in Korea when the North Koreans swiped the Pueblo, which most people don't remember, that was the most scared I've ever been in my life because I thought we were going to nuclear war. I didn't think we'd sell those guys out. I was in Germany when the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia. I got to Nam just after Tet 68 when it was painfully obvious we weren't going to, they weren't going to let us win. The government, our government wasn't going to let us win or let us fight fair either. But, um, so I was very embittered toward the, I hated this country. I really did, like a lot of the GIs when I came home. <clears throat> not just because of the way we were not welcomed, but 93 guys, I think, on the Pueblo for nothing. We we rolled out on the Cambodian or the Czech border two weeks before the invasion because we knew it was coming. Nothing. And then the ADC of Vietnam, 58,000 names on a wall, untold thousands of Thais, Cambodians, because we couldn't keep our nose out of somebody's business. What happens then when you are done with your service in Vietnam with your life? By then, the the only drug I've ever been addicted to is beverage alcohol. I smoked a lot of weed. Uh, I was scared of all the other stuff. That does not mean that every GI in Vietnam was a druggie. That's one of the big lies of Vietnam. But I came back, didn't know what to do, uh, applied to be a dispatcher for the Oakland Police Department in California, uh, which is kind of odd because anyway, uh, they... I was down to the final three, and then I saw an ad in a San Francisco paper. Do you have a top-secret military clearance? Have you been out less than three months? We want you. It was an outfit called Global Associates. They were headhunters for uh, military cost-plus operations. So they, hired, they, they gave me some tests, and they hired me to be a radar operator in Kwajalein in the Marshall Islands. I could barely spell radar, but it was a cost-plus thing, so I went over there and did nothing for three or four months, made pretty good money, tax-free. If you stayed for a whole year, you could go somewhere for a month. But there was one minor problem on the island, no women. So I quit there, came back to Hawaii, started living with a young lady who happened to be a stewardess. She introduced me to some guys she worked for on the side. It was illegal multi-level marketing. Um, so I, I moved to the West Coast and for three years did the drug sales and all that kind of stuff. Everybody's heard those stories, made a lot of money, had a lot of fun. Uh, but in the, on the inside, I was, is this it? Is this all there is? Uh, I can remember laying in bed at 3 o'clock in the morning going, one more lap around the circle tomorrow? Just stay high and uh, every now and then pull a gun on somebody and get rich and sleep around and do all the other junk. The sad thing is I was 26. There's 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds in rural Missouri that are already there. 
that could care less whether they live or die. What happens then? I guess the law eventually catches up to you at some point. I fought the law, and the law won. <laughs> uh, I got busted in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, the same night I got arrested, they arrested about 20 of the guys and a couple of the girls in seven or eight different states. And when those cop car lights came on, and I think it was a Friday night, I was excited because I had never been – at that point in my life, I knew two things were going to happen. I was either going to die or I was going to get busted. To the best of my knowledge, I'd never been dead before. I'd done jail time, never done prison time. So this is something new. I wasn't excited, but I wasn't scared. Yeah, a new chapter in life. Uh, they threw me in Tom Green County Jail in San Angelo. I had Oregon charges, California charges, and federal charges. Oregon got first dibs. I don't know if they played rock, paper, scissors for it. Got extradited to Oregon. Eventually got sentenced to 10, did four. While I was doing that time, California dropped the charges. The feds liked it not to prosecute. Uh, Oregon, the second time I went to the parole board, said, we've rehabilitated you, which is a lie. Uh, but we don't want you to stay in Oregon. It's called reciprocal parole. We think your case has got too much publicity here. You have to go someplace else. At the time, I hated it, but it was a good thing because I knew too many people. So my brother lived in Southern California. I paroled to him, and the rest is kind of history. So is it during your time then in that Oregon prison that life begins to change for you? No, it's actually in the jail in Texas. A couple of weeks after I was there, they found some drugs in the cell, uh, which is not unusual. Drugs are easy to get in jail and prison there on the street. The unusual thing is they punished us. There's a TV set out, the Louis Moore Westerns, the weights, uh, all that they left in the religious stuff. And uh, after a couple of days of having nothing to do, I went over to the pile of books, and to the best of my knowledge, I'd never read a Bible before, was in church for weddings and funerals, had no idea who Jesus Christ was except a swear word. And I didn't want to read the Bible. I was a man. I did the crime. I could do the time. But I needed something to do. So I saw a book with the word prison in it, picked up that book. It was a World War II guy, alcoholic, gets busted, becomes a Christian, but he keeps referring to the Bible. So after a while, I said, eh, well, I guess I'll read the Bible. And not knowing it's 66 books and all that, I started Genesis, somehow make it to the Gospels. And while reading the Gospels, uh, the Holy Spirit, without my permission, began to convict me of sin and judgment. I'm sure it was a theological disaster, because there wasn't a repeat after me prayer. It was just an incredibly lost sinner and a magnificently loving God. And at some level, I did what John 3.16 says, that if you believe, you're saved. That's not just I believe in Santa Claus or I believe it's a trust, cling to, rely on. I didn't know anything then. Don't know a whole lot more now, except that Jesus loves me. This I know. Yeah. You were in that prison, and really it was just you reading the entire time. No, There was no other person there guiding or helping along the way. Interesting you say that. <clears throat> uh, a few years ago, I went to my 50th class reunion. It was really weird. There were a lot of old people there. But... One of my old girlfriends came up to me and she said, can I talk to you? Yeah. Went over in a corner in the place and she said, I need to ask your forgiveness. I think we dated for like three months. When we were together, I was a Christian, but I never, I, I get wimpy at this point, <clears throat> but I never invited you to church, never told you about Jesus. Would you forgive me? Yeah, well, started to walk away. <clears throat> she said, but I want you to know something. What? I never stopped praying for you. Uh, and my, my wife, her, her youth pastor told her to start praying for her future husband. So the times I should have bought it in Nam, times I should have bought it in L.A., I don't pretend to know the mind of God, but I'm glad those two girls were praying. So you do your time. What happens then after that? I get out on parole, get a job as a minister of sanitation, otherwise known as a janitor in church in Southern California. 
the idiot church says, would you be our youth pastor? I'm on parole. But I know what they're thinking. Hey, we got this ex-con drug deal. He'll draw it. Anyway, by God's grace, I didn't do anything too stupid. And I thought it was cool. I'm probably the only convict that was on parole and also served as a trustee. <laughs> anyway, so I'm working at that church Easter of 1977. They had a K-6 through school. They wanted me to wash windows. Uh, they said I could hire a couple kids to work for me, a kid named Billy Bob Maxson, whose parents were from Kansas City. Uh, he was helping me. His parents didn't like California Christianity, so they sent the kids back to camps that Kansas City Youth for Christ ran at the time. So Billy Bob starts telling me about this place, and then like a week later, a guy named Jerry Johnston, who had a big church in Kansas City, he's there, he meets me, tells me about the year-long Bible Institute they have in Kansas City. <clears throat> I apply. Years later, the the founders, Al and Vidi Besker, told me they're driving back to their home and reading my letter saying, do we take a chance on this guy? He's two months out of prison. We don't know anything about him, but his application reads good. To my everlasting gratitude, they took a chance on me. Flew out to Kansas City with $30 in my pocket. No place to stay, no job. For me, it was a great thing. It was a, they designed it as a finishing school. Uh, they asked me to be an evangelist on staff when I graduated. I said, sure. And they said, you got to raise support. I said, no, I've been stealing from people all my life. I can't do that. But God was gracious and I figured out it made sense. So we've been on support since 1978. Stayed in Kansas City for a couple of years. Went to uh, Phillipsburg, Kansas for a couple of years. Went to Rhinelander, Wisconsin for a couple of years. New York for 21 years. Came back here 14 years ago. Uh, speaking, doing school assemblies, doing a lot of prison work, one-on-one discipleship. And just to this day, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I think it was Indira Gandhi that said the secret to success was to find something to do that they will pay you to do, that you would pay to do if you had to. And, you know, not everything's guns and roses and wonderful, uh, but I'm amazed I get to do what I get to do. Quite frankly, I think that's why I get to do it. Your life has done a lot of ministry. Let's talk about the prison piece for a moment, because that's certainly integral in your story yet today. What is it that when you go to a prison that you're able to to share? Because people, I'm sure, are there for lots of different reasons and have lots of different things that happen to them. So what's the message you try to get across? Uh, let me preface it with this. You know, because I do a variety of speaking, a lot of uh, service clubs and stuff like that, VFW, and because of my record, I get places most people don't do. So every now and then somebody says, where's your favorite place to preach? Prison. Where's your least, least favorite place to preach? Christian school. Um, prison, they already know they're screwed. They already know this. They know something's wrong. And uh, you don't have to start, you don't have to try and convince them what sin is. They may not buy that it's sin, but they know whatever they're doing ain't the right thing. And, uh, oh, after I got sentenced, I wrote a letter to the judge saying, teach people that actions have consequences. If they had locked me up in when I was 14 and 16, I got busted for Mickey Mouse stuff. And the judge, unbeknownst to me, at, at the end of it, I talked about my faith in Christ. Unbeknownst to me, he gave the uh, letter to the Grants Pass, Oregon newspaper. UPI picked it up. For the next three or four weeks, the mail clerks in prison hated me. I was getting bags of mail. <laughs> uh, it was crazy. You have a book today that you have written that is kind of your life story, I'm guessing. But talk about the book and then your goal with the book. 
Well, you've had a guest on your show. I can never pronounce his last name, but Milt. I was driving home. I remember my, this is a miracle in itself. I remember my wife wanted me to stop and get something. As I was driving to the store, I saw a sign that said estate sale. This is a couple of years ago. I turned, checked the estate sale. I saw a little sign that said military sale. Forget the estate sale. Pulled in, and now who I knew to be Milt was seated at a table, two or three women around him. Just as I walked up, he said, and I've just finished my 100th book. Say what? So I chatted him up. He was a bird colonel that did a couple tours in Vietnam. uh, And all his life, he's had a passion to write biographies. I think he was 13 when he wrote his first biography of a 106-year-old Civil War drummer. And he's at that I think now he's up to like 123, 130. And and that was just okay, forty years people have been nagging me to write a book. This might be the opportunity. And he's a good interviewer, he pulled things out that I'd never and after he put the book together, uh, he just gives you an eight and a half by eleven mimeograph thing kinda. Of. Uh, no copyright on it, no anything. Doesn't charge it paper. It's ridiculous. It's just his passion. He does it. So here I am sitting with this weirdly written thing because he's he's contributing. It's and I suddenly get, yeah, why don't we just publish this thing? Because people really have been nagging me for it. And then when you could self-publish, I didn't think there'd be enough squeeze, enough juice for the squeeze. But this time I said, right, let me check in. So I checked with some publishers. Got it. What I thought was a fairly good deal. And. I think six months ago, seven months ago, had hard copies of the book. I use I, there's sale Amazon stuff, but I, I wouldn't mind making some money on it, and wouldn't mind negotiating with Tom Cruise to play me in a movie. But uh, then I, a few weeks ago, I got diagnosed with uh, kidney disease and myeloma cancer, and obviously that's changed everything. I can't be around crowds of people, so there go six weeks at camp this summer. They don't want to go in places that are confined. What's a prison? So I can't go behind the walls. But I was thinking my conversion began by reading a paperback book, <clears throat> not the Bible. And so I asked God, could you use my book that way? And then I said, I can't go in anymore. My birthday's coming up. I'm going to do a fundraiser and see if I can get a copy of my book in every prison in the country and ask people to buy two copies of the book, one for them, one for a halfway house. <clears throat> the book is simple it's not, it's hundred and some pages. <clears throat> and then with the birthday thing, I did a Facebook fundraiser where they don't take anything out. And I set the, I live on support, so I'm not rolling in cash. And I set the goal of 2,500. It closed here a couple of days ago, 4,600 came in. I figure maybe 20 bucks a book for postage and the book itself. It's going to take a lot of time to contact every chaplain and find out what hoops you have to jump through. But that's going to be my summer project. Uh, and, you know, I'd, I'd love for people to buy the book and donate it to a halfway house, anything where people are down in the dumps and just might read it. How is the book that you have different or alike from the book that you first read when you went to jail that made a difference in your life? The book I read was an autobiography. Mine, mine kind of is, but it's a lot of interchange. It's very, I think I opened the book by saying this book is weird, just like its author. And it, it kind of does a 30,000-foot flyover of 68 years of life or whatever it was then. What is it about your life that you think people will perhaps find compelling that makes them want to make changes in their, their own life? I don't know how many times I've shared my story, 
but literally thousands. Yeah. And I despise it when somebody says, oh, you've got such an exciting testimony. Uh huh. 26 years living for the devil. Uh, every testimony is exciting because it's about Jesus, not us. I'm known to be the biggest criticism I get. Jack, you're too transparent, which really baffles me. Uh, you don't have to go into sordid details, but I, I, I preach a sermon on the two lies Christians tell, one intentionally, one non-intentionally. The first one is fine in response to how you're doing. That's intentional because I don't want to admit how I'm doing. And I'll be praying for you. That's unintentional because we just forget about it. Uh, Bible says confess your sins one another, pray for one another. Unspoken prayer requests drive me crazy. What am I supposed to do with that? So I, I don't know why I can't stand in church and say, I, I do, but because I'm such a sensitive guy, I'm really struggling with lots this week. Would you pray for me? Because there's so many people who think they're the only one. So so I'm blunt. I don't pull any punches. I don't think I'm rude, but uh, I, I don't know who said it, but I heard the saying, Christians are notorious for almost saying something. And I think that's not just Christians, that's anybody. Parents, uh, kids are, I mean, it's always been tough to be a kid, a teenager. I can't even imagine now. Sometimes I'm accused of talking about stuff that's that the teenagers are too young to hear. If I could, I'd tell the fourth graders and the fifth graders. From any, if you give a rip about people, tell them the truth. Tell them the dangers. Don't don't try to scare the stuff out of them. Like you know, the scared straight stuff doesn't work because it's not going to happen to me. We all have that disease, but somehow convince them that actions have consequences. And the biggie to me is personal responsibility. And until you man up and own your stuff, whether you're a Christian or not Christian, you can't change it. Again, with or without Christ, you can't turn it around until you take responsibility. So now the we haven't talked a, a lot about the book as far as where people can find it. So tell about the name of the book and where people can find it. Captured by Grace, Amazon and Broadman and Holden. Talk about your life now as we sit here. You've alluded to it a little bit, but you mentioned that uh, you you want to make the most of the time, uh, 20 years or whatever it is, but how you want to live life. Well, becoming a Christian at 26, going to Bible college at 31, full-time ministry at 32. So I've been in ministry a few years. And when I turned 50, I began specifically specifically praying for 20 more years of effective ministry, Keyword being effective. Uh, I still do. I have cancer, but cancer doesn't have me. And uh, I'm not enough of a Calvinist to say that God sent the cancer. He could have, but at the very least, he allowed it. And all things work together for good probably means all things work together for good. And my chief desire is to finish well. I, I, I'm not against the concept of retirement, but why retire from something you love doing? Uh, so... Even with the cancer diagnosis, I'm praying for 20 more years. I've been 96. Okay? Um, I'm just, I get to do such a variety of things, and I'm so amazed I get to do it, and God just keeps opening doors, like, for instance, I'm talking to you. Jack, I really appreciate the time. Are there any other things that you would like people to, to know before we wind up? I'm in ministry for anybody, and if by reading the book or something I said sparks, feel free to call me. 816-261-1881. People say, oh, my goodness, don't give your number out. Eh. It's easy to hang up. Uh, but I'm not real smart, but I, I'm a good listener. And, if, you know, maybe you have a child or a loved one that's locked up. Uh, I never write the first letter. 
but you can tell them to write me when you get the address by calling me or emailing me at jack.hager at gmail. And if that, if, if somebody locked up writes me the first letter, I'll write back. Because I, if I write the first letter, that's all I do, and they never write back. But I guess I'm just saying I'm available. Well, that's a good thing to be in this that world today, just to be there. We really do. We really do. We really do need each other. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate the time. My privilege. As you can tell, Jack has a heart for service, truly wanting to help others. When I heard about his service to country, and also his new book titled Captured by Grace, and his goal to get it to every prison this year, I thought it was a topic worthy of our Independence Day special. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside and our daily show, American Countryside, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Just type in Farming the Countryside or American Countryside. I appreciate you listening. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bioproven 40 OS. The nitrogen you need, now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com.